1: I am Dean Linke, and we have a big show today. I think this might be one of the best shows ever. In fact, I hope you agree. Leading off, Christian Lavers, the president and CEO of the ECNL, with more about the demise of the DA with U.S. soccer and where ECNL fits in, where all of the other groups might fit in as well. He was ready for all and every question. Following him, someone who I wanted to get on for a long time, Yael Averbush West. Two time national champion at North Carolina, two time national champion in the WPS. She also won a title in the NWSL. She's played for every USA national team, including the full senior national team. She is the founder and owner of Techni Football, an app that is being used by all these young soccer players, perfect for individual training. And she is also the co executive director of the NWSL Players Union. She will talk about all. All of that in her time and then of course we were so happy to hear that the NCAA rejected last week the 27 division one conferences request for a blanket waiver on division one requirements on the minimum number of sports a school must sponsor because make no mistake we felt like perhaps men's college soccer was in trouble maybe it still is but to answer all of those questions Brian Weese the head coach of the Georgetown men's soccer team who won their first ever national championship just a year ago. Boy, does that seem like a long time ago. Brian Weiss on the show. Are you kidding me? Christian Labors, Yael Averbush-West, and Brian Weiss. That's our show. And it begins with Christian Labors after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap.
0: Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help their customers save time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap, go to teamsnap.com/nscaa1.
2: Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. Got a great show, but we're kicking it off with Christian Labers. He is the president and CEO of the Elite Clubs National League, known better as ECNL, and the director of coaching at FC Wisconsin. He has coached boys and girls soccer for more than twenty years and coach teams in nearly every league in the country, ECNL, USYS, the DA, USASA, and more. He also coached professionally in the NWSL, the former University of Wisconsin Badger men's soccer player, Christian Labors, joins me now. Christian, I know you are on a webinar last week, but thanks for coming back for the return and being part of the United Soccer Coaches
3: podcast. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity, Dean, and I really enjoyed talking to you and your listeners, so uh, thanks for having me back on.
2: Yeah, well, you know what, we sat down at the convention in Baltimore, and it was during a time where perhaps you had vision of an omen, I'm not sure, I know you didn't have vision of pandemic, so it's unrelated to that, but, you know, you kind of had to, for lack of a better word, curb some of your comments, and we kind of went back and forth, should we err, should we not, and we erred on the better side of judgment in the sense that you were like, look, something might be coming down, and sure enough, and... I don't necessarily think it's totally pandemic related, but regardless, we all know now that U.S. soccer is kept away from the D.A. part of the world. So in ECNL, of course, Incept, a lot of other groups as well. But hindsight being 2020, it definitely was worth the wait, right, Christian? It made sense because
3: now there's a lot of action that's got to take place, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I remember sitting and talking to you there, and and I for for the record, and to be clear, I didn't know anything um, with any degree of certainty. You know, the rumor mill is the rumor mill, but uh, I, I just I just felt like that maybe we could provide a, a better, more robust discussion in a couple weeks when I just felt things may settle out for the next twelve months, um, and whether that's membership on our end or sort of changes in the DA, and so. Uh, again, I didn't anticipate the degree of change and and, uh, and the, the shutdown of the DA. But uh, I'm glad that we can talk now because it certainly is a very different landscape than it was when we were talking in, in January in Baltimore.
2: Well, and also for the record, all along, I thought you very eloquently said, there's a place for everyone. You weren't trying to be divisive. And, and I believe you, Christian. I think that people know you believed you because that was part of your core values, right? You weren't Trying to be divisive?
3: No, I mean the the landscape, as you know, has been fractured or or divided to some degree or another for a while now, and um, we've been we've been working to try and heal some of that. You know, some of that is even within our own league, as you know. There are clubs that left, clubs that have come back over the previous years, um, as other leagues have, have come and gone, and and I think moving forward, that is the biggest challenge uh, for all of us, which is to find a a little bit more uh, cohesive landscape, maybe a landscape in which there's less vitriol or there's less weaponization of differences between clubs and and more focus on providing a really good environment. Um, And everybody's going to have a different perspective on what that means for their club, for their league, for their platform – but uh, maybe starting with a better understanding that we're all, we're all in this together to a large degree, and, and, and maybe that should be higher in our, in our minds. You mentioned perspective. What's your perspective on why U.S. soccer made the decision to step away from the D.A.? You know, you'd have to ask them on that. Uh, I think there's a lot of different issues that are going on and a lot of challenges uh, in the landscape um, in multiple different ways. It's for sure, the coronavirus impact. I'm uh, probably pushed decisions forward in time, or made certain realities more stark. Uh, and we're all facing that, right? Your organization, United Soccer Coaches, uh, every club in the country and league. You know, when when the pandemic w- was declared and everything shut down, the first thing everybody did is take a hard look at their structure, their stability, their finance. The, the next six months and start to say, how do we make sure that we come through this well? And so I'm sure U.S. soccer did something similarly, and that probably added even more of a urgency or made a decision that was maybe a little murky, more clear. So, you know, I take them at their word in the, in the statement that they made. I'm sure other things went into it, but I'm sure coronavirus kind of uh, was the final straw, as they say. Well, let's start with one kind of open-ended question before we get into
2: sort of what slice of the pie you're looking for here, but just an overall question from your position as president and CEO of ECNL, and that is, how do you respond to people who are actually afraid right now, Kristen, that their teams or players will not have a place to play?
3: It's a great question, uh, Dean, and, and uh, I think there's a little bit of hysteria in that right now, and the bottom line is that every, every player, every club, every team is going to find a place to play when, when soccer resumes, hopefully, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, but that, there's so many platforms out there. There's so many different leagues and sanctioning bodies. And, that, and, and in many ways, that's a good thing. Because in a time like this, there's going to be a place that everybody lands. And it may not necessarily be the place that's choice one for them or the place they feel they should be, but there will be a place to start from. And then I think that this process, you know, when you when you just remove a league that that involved, you know, 150 or whatever it is clubs in the country and all of a sudden it's gone, there is going to be a time period that has to pass for all of that to settle out. And as you see, some clubs have already found spots and places that, that worked where there was a connection between what the league or the platform needed and what the club wanted. Some clubs are still going through that process. And to be honest, I think that this is going to happen again, you know, a year from now as we're talking about the, you know, the 21-22 season. There's going to be movement around because leagues are going to change. Clubs are going to evolve. Some of the uh, questions and uncertainty are going to go away with respect to where a club may be. Um, And I think you'll have further movement to a smaller degree. But over the course of the next year, year and a half, I think things are going to calm down but it, uh, before we get to that point, it certainly is uh, a little bit of a little bit of musical chairs right now, for sure. Well, in many ways, Christian,
2: I feel like it doesn't really get any less murky. In fact, I have to applaud all of the leaders on the webinar, which was pretty much talking about the fallout of the DA with U.S. soccer, and on there, you had. Kevin Payne, who heads up U.S. Club Soccer, we had Skip Gilbert, who heads up U.S.Y.S., you had you, you had Lynn Burley-Manuel, you had Liam O'Connell with USL, and this week, actually today, when this podcast is released, we're going to be talking to Major League Soccer, that sounds like they're going to try to step in and, for lack of a better word, pick up some of the pieces left behind When you looked at the questions that were popping in on that webinar, which was attended by nearly 1,500 people, a lot of the questions were, why can't everybody just merge together, which that just seems too simply stated. But, Kristen, you're smarter than me. I kind of avoided that one on the webinar. I'm not going to avoid it here because I do kind of want your input on that. Is there a place for everybody, including all those entities I just mentioned, including Major League
3: Soccer? Well, first, for the record, I will never say I'm smarter than you, Dean. So that uh, I, I think you're selling yourself short on that. Um, but I do think you're absolutely right when you say it's it's not that simple to say why can't everybody play together and everybody get along and everybody do the same thing. And you know, when you say it that way, it it almost sounds silly, but. Um, if you get 10 soccer clubs in a room and you ask them questions about how they operate, what their mission is, what they're looking to accomplish, how the best thing, the best process for doing that, what they want in a competitive platform, where their levels of teams are, how much they want to travel, what their aspirations of their players are, you're going to get a dozens of different perspectives. And then to say, but we all have to be under the same thing and play in the same structure at the same time, doing the same thing, it just it doesn't make sense. I mean, I saw something on social media the other day, and, and again, I'll, I'll say what we've learned over the last several years is social media is not reality. Um, but a question where somebody said, well, why can't every club in the state all just get together and play in one competition and have one championship? And it, again, sounds so romantically nice until you recognize that First of all, there would be way too many games. A huge number of those games would be massively uncompetitive. And to do that would also displace so much other valuable programming for clubs at, at, at every level of the uh, performance chart uh, that it's unrealistic to do that. So if you want to get everybody to play in everything, you have, to tr- you have to drop out a lot of other positive things that, or, or you have to override a lot of other desires that clubs and coaches and players have that are very genuine and very positive. And so I think that the, the the, the reality is when I look at it is we all have uh, clubs or leaders or people that believe in the things that we do or believe in a lot of them. And they want to structure things together because they like working with people. They feel philosophically aligned. They feel like it works for their membership. And again, when we're in a continent, there's going to be different pathways no matter what we do. The challenge is to have something at the end of it that may unite those pathways in some way. So, you know, I know there's been talk about this. Michael uh mentioned this as part of his platform when he was running for U.S. Soccer Board of Directors, which is, you know, at some level it would make sense to have maybe an American championship that the winner of USU, the winner of US Club, the winner of ECNL, the winner of U Triple SA, whoever it may be, comes together and that is the final American championship. And hmm. that also sounds a little bit oversimplified. But I don't think it is realistic in any way to say everybody's going to play in the same structure, in the same way, that filters up from a continent to a top of a pyramid um, without having other major, major sacrifices you make. If instead we say there's going to be different pathways for clubs with different perspectives, with different desires, that have different structures, but at the end everybody at the top plays off so that we can say, you know we're all under one umbrella. I think that that's interesting. I think that would be exciting. Um, there's a lot more challenge to put that together than I outlined, but uh, I just don't think it's realistic to just throw everybody together and say we're all going to be in the same organization operating the same way. Well, I appreciate
2: that answer, and I must admit I feel like it's uniquely unfair that I've asked you to address U.S. soccer and these other entities when I should keep the focus on what you've done at ECNL as the president and CEO. So with that, kind of a combo question here, Christian, and that is knowing that U.S. soccer has said we're done – any thoughts to expanding ECNL with the DA not running? Lots of clubs will obviously be looking for ECNL status. I certainly would imagine that how are these clubs losing DA teams going to be allowed to get into ECNL if they don't already have
3: teams in ECNL? So I, I guess I'll go back to your comment real quick. I, I think, you know, I don't mind any question you ask. I think it's actually far more important to have really pointed questions that are difficult. And to have that dialogue than it is to, you know, softly walk around things because if we are going to move forward, we have, we have to put cards on the table. We have to get people's perspectives honestly, um, on the table so that, you know, we can find ways to work together. So, uh, you know, thank you, number one, for asking difficult questions because I think too often in these topics, uh, we end up talking about a lot, not, not you and I, but in, I look at a lot of interviews where you end up talking about stuff that's just not as important. So, I think, I think that's, that's really helpful. As far as expansion goes, um, I think we've added 20-something clubs to the CNL you know, in the past, uh, couple of weeks and might be closer to 30. So we certainly have, uh, looked to, to expand. There are real challenges with, uh, huge numbers of expansion, especially in the short term. I mean, number one, we're in, in some ways, the biggest crisis since World War II in our country with respect to when does soccer start, what does it look like, what is going to be the perspective and position on travel of families, what is going to be the financial changes of clubs and families. And so there's a huge amount of uncertainty that says it'd be pretty silly to just start building out castles in the sky of what you think everything's going to be in the fall because we don't know when the fall might start. We don't know what the fall might look like, for example. So that creates a cloud of uncertainty around um, a lot of planning you know from the from our league perspective the girls were very very close to capacity and when i mean capacity i talk about that one from a national perspective when you look at the number of showcase events we have throughout the year and the number of teams that are there there legitimately are very few fields that don't get used at the events and at the facilities and at the days that we have them so it's not so easy just say here's 20 more clubs and let's figure out where to put them. Because, for example, we don't like to do showcase events that have uh, facilities that are 20 minutes apart from each other because that creates a challenge for the coaches, it creates a challenge for the recruiters, it ch- it's just a challenge operationally, and it reduces the value. From a conference perspective, it's the same thing. We look and say there's a certain number of weekends available in the year and a certain number of games that are appropriate, and so each time that you add clubs, you're changing that dynamic, and that means – you can't go too big, or you lose the ability to have a um, a nice schedule with competitive balance, um, or you put too many games into too short of a period of time, which we all know is, is, is a challenge as well. So there's capacity at multiple levels. Then you talk about membership service and the ability to service and operate a platform to the degree that we want with the uh, what I hope is exceptional quality, uh, that we don't want to get so big that the quality of what we provide uh, drops off. So you take all that stuff and then say within this, we know that we want to add clubs. We know we want to have the best clubs in the country. How do we get there? And how do we get there in a spot where we take what we can in the short term, knowing that um, nine months from now, we may have the ability to do much more than that. Um, So it's, it's, as you can tell from my answer, it's very complicated and it's not and and that's before you even get into opinions of how does this club do compared to that club. And uh we're working through it as fast as we can and, and doing the best that we can in making these decisions intelligently. Kicking off our show with Christian Labor's
2: president and CEO of ECNL and it's human nature to hold a grudge, so I'm gonna ask you the hold a grudge question. And that is, Christian, will current ECNL member clubs have a say in rejecting DA clubs who would like to return back into ECNL? They obviously left for the DA, especially if the potential returning DA club is in close proximity to the current
3: ECNL club. That question is one I'm, that I'm asked or not asked, but I know is out all the time. And I'll answer it first by saying I, um, I think our, our track record has shown that we have taken back clubs who have left in the league. So in multiple markets around the country, clubs who left three or four years ago, uh, we put new clubs into the league in some cases. And when clubs wanted to come back, uh, we've accepted them back. And now we have two clubs where before we had one club or five clubs where before we had four clubs um, in other areas, uh, we've we've added not necessarily in the same city but clubs back in the conference and the conference is bigger. So I think our track record has shown that we're not holding a grudge and saying somebody's blackballed or saying that we'll never take somebody back because we've actually to a large degree I mean I think the number of clubs that have left the girls DA and that have come to the ECNL before the girls DA uh, was announced as closed uh, is in the double digits. So Uh, I think that answers very clearly that we're not blackballing. On a second second answer to that is no club in the league has a veto. Our decision uh, on club membership is made by a board of directors, and the board of directors is responsible for the entire country. And so the person, the representative of each conference, is not the czar of that conference who has ultimate authority on that conference. And quite honestly, I don't think any of our board would actually want that responsibility because they'd be dodging tomatoes and other things thrown at them all the time. We try and make a a good decision for the league and for the game and for what we believe is the best interest of the league and the game um, as a national board. And it is really, really difficult. And, you know, beyond all the other factors, that, uh, that that I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking with expansion, you do have to look at philosophical alignment because uh, we're a youth soccer organization. This isn't the Premier League. This isn't professional soccer where the, the be-all and end-all is wins and results. We're supposed to be about youth development. We're supposed to be about a holistic environment. We're supposed to be about soccer within the scope of a young adult's life. And a great job of it, by the way, for kids that really want to be great and aspire to the highest levels, but we also want to have philosophical alignment with the clubs that come into our league because that's going to make us stable so that we're providing the services that those clubs value, if that makes
2: sense. You mentioned holistic environment, Christian Labors and ECNL. is also being asked, as you know, to take a leadership position on high schools. We have colleges visit high school teams, and it could be a way to be seen is it a mistake to leave the club, or can we let players decide if they want to play at their high school, Christian?
3: I think high school soccer, and this has been consistent with uh, with our values and our position um, from day one. I mean, one of our core values is respect for diversity of opinion and outcome. Um, and ultimately, whether to play high school soccer or not is a very personal decision of a family and of a club. And so we do, we schedule our starting point is that we schedule around the high school season, that all of our clubs and players can play ECNL and can play in the high school. There are places and clubs or teams that, uh, that do not want to play high school soccer. They want to be in a club environment year-round. And to the degree that a club makes that statement to us, we will help facilitate them to have more of a 10-month competition um, but it is not required. We don't have a position on it one way or the other. And ultimately, we've seen, and this is true throughout you know, the past 25 years, you have some great soccer players that have come through and gone to the highest level, boys and, boys and girls in this country, by the way, that played high school soccer, that played other high school sports. You also have great players that have gone through and have never played high school soccer, some of whom have only played soccer for the majority of their sporting life leading into college and beyond. And so that is such a a decision with unique variables and unique context. I think it's the height of arrogance to say that we have a position that we're going to mandate to everybody. And so we'll facilitate as clubs decide what they want. And ultimately what I what I would predict over time is that Every club at some level is going to have kids that want to play in a club environment 10 months, but it's not going to be the majority, and it certainly shouldn't be something that's forced upon them. Also on the webinar last week, seemed like we got a lot of questions
2: from clubs out in Northern California, if I remember correctly, even in the great Northwest into Washington. With that, describe your vision, Christian Labors,
3: for the ECNL regional leagues that are forming across the country. So the ECNL Regional League platform, we started two years ago on the girls' side, and the the concept there was uh, twofold. One was to provide an opportunity and service for a deeper player pool in, in our member clubs, but two was was to provide a proving ground where ultimately more information can be made on a club becoming a member of the ECNL based on performances and, and competition. And that's what we are. That's what we are growing and building within that platform, is the ability for us to have a place where, for example, if there's a club in the in the ECNL that is struggling, that has not done well um, over time, there's a place to move them where the level of competition is a little bit lower, where it may be more appropriate for them. And if there are clubs that want to be in the ECNL, we're taking these decisions out of the boardroom, and putting more of them on the field at a place where we know the level of competition. And, and that, that piece of information, to know the level of competition, is actually really important. Because right now, when you look at a club's quote-unquote resume, first of all, you have a lot of clubs that don't play each other. So you can't compare one club to another when they've never played each other. Second of all, when you do see some of these games, they're played in a random tournament here or there, or a friendly, or some other um, some other competition where you're not sure... Was this really the best against the best or was one club approaching this with a different philosophy and playing a different group of players? I mean, we see, we see resumes of clubs, three different clubs in the same town all, all claiming they developed the same player. So when, when you look and say, how do we ensure transparency and membership in the long term? Well, the easiest way is to say there's a league called the regional league where go into that, demonstrate on the field your, your performance level. And if you excel in that environment, at consistently across age groups, that is the biggest piece of information for determining new membership into the league, and that's what we're we're building now across the country. So, our clubs
2: with ECNL affiliation allowed to have teams in both ECNL and ECNL
3: Regional. Yes, and so we have some ECNL Regional leagues that started as just. Uh, uh, leagues for the second teams of ECNL clubs. That's how this process started a couple of years ago. Uh, but now we have multiple leagues, and they're growing, and there's several more that we hope to announce here in the next couple of weeks of uh, either predominantly clubs that are not in the ECNL. So, for example, this year we did a pilot in Virginia. The uh, Virginia Premier League became a ECNL Regional League. There are two ECNL clubs in that league, and there are nine clubs from outside the ECNL In that league. Um, We just announced one a couple of months ago in the Midwest where there's three clubs in the ECNL and three clubs that are not member clubs of the ECNL. So that sort of integrated level of competition is actually really, really helpful because that gives us a real clear barometer of what the level of competition is and therefore we can evaluate what the performance of the club is um, with a lot higher degree of accuracy than based on a piece of paper with a bunch of leagues that we know have become very watered down or very inconsistent. Kicking off our United
2: Soccer Coaches podcast with Christian Lavers, president and CEO of ECNL. A couple more questions. I'm going to ask this one because you said I was allowed to. When you learned about the demise of U.S. Soccer's DA program and then subsequently learned about Major League Soccer kind of swooping in and almost assuming that same role, what was and what is your reaction to MLS's involvement. Yeah. <laughs>
4: um,
3: well, you know, I can say my my wife, who is a soccer person, she was uh, also a coach in the NWSL and a club director for a long time out in uh, on the East Coast. When uh, when the the DA announcement came out, um, and we looked at each other and said, "Holy cow!" I think maybe a day later, uh, we said that that chapter is closed and that doesn't mean that you know the world becomes smooth sailing i mean there's always going to be other um, platforms and other competitions and challenges in any in any business and certainly in soccer it's the same but we looked and said holy cow that was three or four years where that was a big piece of the landscape and uh we looked at each other and said wow that's things are going to be different and then i think like 10 minutes later the mls press (laughs) release came out so it was like (laughs) As soon as one you know one piece of the landscape changes, another one comes in and I think there's a lot of questions about the MLS piece and what that's going to look like and uh, how that's going to be operated and as we've said, it's a pretty challenging time to start something new um, but we'll see where that goes and see what that uh, what that platform provides and we'll just continue to be driven by our values and our philosophy and, and, and the, the goal of, of serving the needs of our clubs and making the game better, and, and, and I'm, I'm not worried about what a lot of other leagues do. We'll have some of those
2: questions answered later today on yet another webinar, Coaching Through COVID. It'll feature Major League Soccer along with Ian Barker, the Director of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches. So speaking of coaching education, I'll end with that. Christian, I was really pleased with the emphasis you put on that webinar on coaching education. Obviously, we're United Soccer Coaches, but clearly education for your coaches in ETL is important to you and the organization.
3: Absolutely. I think education is one of the most under used and undervalued tools for behavior change. And, and you know, I say that because so many people want to pronounce a problem solved by a rule or a law or a mandate or a prohibition. And ultimately, nobody changes behavior at the end of a gun. They change behavior when they uh, decide that they need to change behavior or there's a better way to do things or a more effective way to do things. And so I think from that regard, so many of the issues in soccer that we want to improve are solved with more accessible education, more education, better education, and then allowing people to take the information that they, that they glean and take it back into their context and try it and in their environment and learn how it works in their environment. And, I, and I'll, I'll say, it I'm not the first one to say this, I think the, 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 the smarter you get in anything – the more you realize you don't know. And so I think the same is true in human development, in athletic development, in talent development, in all aspects of the game. The more we learn about the brain, the more we learn about learning, the more we learn about players and how they develop over time, the more it seems that there are huge things that we don't understand. And it's it's most obvious with the fact that nobody can predict at age 11 or 12 who's going to be the superstar at age 20. And yet so much of our, our our sporting life is based around glorifying younger players. But nobody can predict that. And so I think more education that even gets that sort of thought out and then how you reach players more effectively and how they learn more effectively, I think, it, it is the answer to raising the standards of the game in every way in our country. And so I wholeheartedly support it. As we sign off, Christian, the more time I spend with you, the more I
2: realize you're less about a elevator stump speech, which I I like about you. You're very pragmatic in in everything you do, including your work at ECNL. But if you only had 60 seconds to speak to those clubs that are trying to figure things out about the virtues and values of ECNL, what would you say?
3: I would say the first thing in running a club is to know uh, what your values are what you stand for, and what your goals are. And if you have a solid foundation of a vision and values, then you can build an incredibly successful club from that point. It might take longer to do it in that regard because you're building more progressively and you're building um, more carefully. But if you do it that way, you, you can control your environment and you can create a culture in your club that will be long-lasting, that will be sticky in the sense that it brings and keeps people with you. And then you can find the right platform for your club that respects and aligns with the values that you respect and align with. And I think that's ultimately how you navigate through challenging circumstances, whether it be coronavirus or whether it be finding a spot or a league, is you go back to what do I believe in, who do I want to be with, who are the people I respect that believe the things I believe, and then you build things together, and that's what we try and do with know. Christian Lavers, President
2: and CEO of ECNL. Christian, thanks for kicking off this week's podcast.
3: Always a pleasure to be with you, Dan, and really appreciate your sharp questions, and enjoy the conversation. All right, coming up, Yael
2: Averbush. She developed an app, and talk about great timing. It's an app that can be used for individual soccer
1: players, individual training. She'll tell you all about that. She'll also tell you about her work with NWSL. Being a coach means being a lot of things. Mentor, teacher, role model, motivator, leader, organizer. Of course, it's not easy to be all of those things. You need help, and who better to help you than an association of fellow coaches. Membership with United Soccer Coaches includes access to over $500 worth of e-learning courses, an improved online resource library with more than 1,000 activities, session plans and articles, $1 million worth of liability insurance, and a whole lot more. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join and start your free 30-day introductory membership today. United Soccer Coaches, your association for all things coaching. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast, presented by
2: TeamSnap. Reminding you that coming up after this exciting interview is Brian Weese, the head coach for the Georgetown Men's Soccer Team, your reigning national champions. Here to talk about the importance of keeping college soccer, college sports in general, around. I want to thank Kristen Lavers, the president and CEO of ECNL for kicking things off. Now, as promised and long overdue, so pleased to be joined by Yael Averbush West, who was an outstanding player at North Carolina, where she was a two-time national champion, outstanding player in the WPS, where she was a two-time national champion. She also won a title in NWSL. She's played soccer for the USA at every level, including the full senior national team. She is the co-executive director of the NWSL Player Union, and we'll talk about that, but I'm especially delighted to talk about the fact that she is the founder and owner of Technique Football, an app that more than three or four of my guests on the United Soccer Coaches podcast have brought up of late, as the focus on individual training has never been bigger, and that is the big focus of Technique Football. That said, Yael Averbush West, by the way, you're also getting ready to be a mom, too, right? As if you need something else in your life. Is that right?
4: (laughs) Yes, a lot going on. All
2: right, when are you due?
4: Uh, Late September. So hopefully by then uh, this current situation will be a little bit different, but we shall see. (laughs) All
2: right, well, it's kind of neat that you're going to become a mom because in this era of helicopter parents, I have always loved your mom. She has always kind of been an open book and it's funny I say that because she's written a ton of books and in my hand right now is the vision of a champion advice and inspiration from the world's most successful women's soccer coach written by your mom Gloria and the legendary coach Anson Dorrance but you know as you think about becoming a mom I got to believe your mom is true inspiration for you
4: yeah you know I think it's one of those things you realize uh, the older you get how you know, you realize things about your parents, and you become more like them in ways, both good and bad. And so, I was, I was joking with my mom the other day. I said, "Watch, Karma's going to get me because all the times I was mean and ungrateful and embarrassed by her, she's you know, she's out there. She's she's hilarious. She's always around. Um, all the times i was embarrassed and told her, like, Mom, get back in the car or whatever. I was like, Yeah, now my daughter's gonna." going to be doing the same with me so no, but my mom and my dad have always been incredibly supportive parents played a huge part in my soccer career and now in my work in the soccer world and beyond
2: when you think about her work as an author obviously not just writing about soccer but about running and and other things and there's a lot of pride and I kind of get what you're saying there I mean but she was always really good about I think tooting your horn in a very appropriate way you may have thought maybe it was over the top but in my business as a broadcaster I thought she was very fair and balanced and talking about her daughter and daughters maybe you didn't realize it but she was pretty good about that yeah
4: no I know she, she's always been very careful about that and very uh, conscious of it uh, you know I was I was a kind of a teenager though who was going to be embarrassed about anything so it wasn't it wasn't her it was me <laughs> well
2: one thing you don't need to be embarrassed about is where Technique Football is. And you talk about an app that is indeed, for lack of a better word, pandemic ready. It's your app for individual training. And as we've had these webinars and the podcast hosted by United Soccer Coaches, as I've said, more than a handful of coaches from all over the country have said and referenced your app, Technique Football. So let's do some history here. I know you're driven right? You've had success at everything, including business. What made you want to do this app? And you're so far ahead of the curve, Yael, that it's paying off right now.
4: Yeah, you know, well, it's good to hear that uh, some of the people on your podcast had brought it up. I think, you know, for me, I've always loved the part of the game uh, that I can do on my own. You know, it's a team sport, but I think both my parents are long-distance runners and, and individual athletes at heart. So I kind of grew up with the mindset of always figuring out what I could do on my own in between my group training sessions and games. And I I credit that time spent, all the hours spent on my own, really with what allowed me to play at the highest level and achieve my childhood dreams. So for me, I love sharing that part of the game with other players. Like, what can you do to separate yourself and make yourself a little bit different or special? And so even apart from this time, I've always – You know, I've always shared training videos on social media and YouTube and ideas for players on things that they can control. You know, there's so much in this game and in this world as we're learning that we can't control. But um, in soccer, your technique is one thing you really do have control over, and it's just a matter of spending the time with the ball. So really the Techni app, which I launched uh, just about three and a half years ago as I was still playing professionally, so I was an active player. It's, it's based on just that it's a blueprint for players to follow and allow them to track their progress uh, with the understanding that there's no shortcut here you got to spend those hours training and having the ball at your feet and working on all the various components of the game uh, but it you know it helps make it fun for them to do that it makes it engaging and it allows them to have the ideas behind you know what what they can be doing
2: tell me about The inspiration for the name and then behind the name Technique Football, tell me about the amount of work it took to, for lack of a better word, get accredited or sanctioned or whatever you got to do to get an app approved and out there on the market.
4: Yeah, so this is a big learning curve for me and all of it. Actually, I was uh, I was thinking of the idea. I had a, uh, I have a YouTube channel uh, where I shared all kinds of training ideas, and I always would get requests, you know, oh, we want more more training progressions or more of this. So for a long time, I had had the idea to create something more substantial for players. Um, and I was actually reading – I wish I remember what book it was, but I was reading some book that talked about the word techni, which is actually a Greek word, and it means craftsmanship, craft, or art which I thought I under I think I underlined it right away and drew a big mark in the book because I said, wow, one, it sounds like technique, it sounds like technology, and it means exactly what I was going after. Like, this is your craft as an athlete, as a soccer player, and really what what I want to do is that, and that's how I view it. I've always viewed it kind of as like fine-tuning my craft, and that's kind of the message I want to get across to players is this is your craft to make it what you want it to be and to spend the time to really hone and refine your skills. And so that word automatically I was like, that's it. I gotta I gotta call whatever I do technique. Uh I didn't actually know what it would be at the time. And from that point on it was a real learning process in terms of finding the right platform to deliver this training content and let players have a tracking system and connect with others, also using the app. Well, what ends up being an app. But really, I, I was very fortunate to um, – my co-founder, Sam, now Ugulava, but her, her, uh, her maiden name is Sam, Samantha Weber, uh, connected me with a freelance developer. Who I, knew, I don't know much about technology still, and I definitely didn't then, but really just had a first version of something built, and it was actually a website that you could go to at first. Uh, and then um, eventually connected with my now business partner, who's a developer, who helped us to get the app into the app store, which is a, a big process. Um, it's on both Apple and Android, so anyone with a, a smartphone can use it. But really, uh, it, I've learned as I've, as I've gone along, and building technology is a whole business in and of itself. I see why people make whole careers out of it, so certainly um, I don't do any of that part. That's all my business partner now and, and my team that works on it. So, very fortunate to have good people supporting that process.
2: Well, you heard me say pandemic ready. I gotta believe that sales are off the charts because these young athletes, they can't do anything with their team for the most part. They've gotta be on their own, and that's what your app is all about, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, the whole idea is that we hope that these are things that players are doing as supplemental work all the time, even when they can't train with their team. But the reality is right now it's all anybody can do is the work on your own. So really, um, you know, we've had hundreds of clubs and teams from across the country and even uh, internationally across the world reach out to us, and, and we're working with people to help support uh, support coaches and players through this time to allow for the programming that, uh, that's really difficult to do remotely. And that's the whole idea is that um, you don't need anybody with you. You don't need any real equipment. It's we, what we say is all you need is a ball and a wall. And even sometimes we can scrap the wall. We have living room training sessions available in there. And the whole idea is, like, you don't need much. If you have your ball, uh, you can find a way to get better. So really right now I think the message uh, is so easy for players to understand.
2: Kind of interesting, you said, doing this away from the team, and I told you that I have the book written by your mom and Anson Dorrance, The Vision of a Champion, and when you open it up, it says, and this is from Mia Ham, Anthony Dorrance, giving her credit, The Vision of a Champion is someone who is bent over, drenched in sweat, at the point of exhaustion when no one else is watching. When no one else is watching, that's the key, right? That also had to be part of the fabric of why you wanted to do this.
4: Oh, absolutely. I think that quote really embodies something that I've uh, believed throughout my whole career. And I remember, I mean, that's a quote I have written on every wall, every uh, notebook of mine. It's everywhere because it, it so embodies the truth behind, I think, what it takes to be great in any field, um, especially athletics, is that, you know, we see the championship game or the pro player on TV wearing the cool gear and the glory part, but what goes behind that is kind of like the, they have this, uh, an image drawn of an iceberg and you see like the very tip of it, but like what goes on under the water is the bulk of that body of work, the, all the, you know, literally blood, sweat and tears and hours and hours that go into honing your craft. And I think, that's the part of the game like when I think of my playing career I had some amazing moments where I won championships and had these big games but actually what I think of most fondly is like the hours spent at the schoolyard wall striking the ball off the wall you know listening to my music in the racquetball court while I worked on passing and receiving and I think that's like that's the essence of you know what technique is all about.
2: Another quote that I like that you use when you go to your app is not from a soccer player, but from an NFL football player, arguably the greatest wide receiver to ever Played the game, Jerry Wright. And his quote says, Today I will do what others won't. Tomorrow I can accomplish what others can't. What does that quote mean to you?
4: Yeah, I think it's like, it's the whole idea of setting yourself apart. You know, we, when I whenever I would do in-person appearances with, with groups of youth players, I would say, you know, who wants to be a professional soccer player? And everyone raises their hand. And then when I would start to talk to players about what it actually takes to do that, you see kind of people's minds are working and they're like, oh, some of them don't know anymore. And, and that's what I think it is, is that everybody wants success, but... Who's actually willing to do the work? And what, what I think a lot of players don't realize is that really kind of like I mentioned before, there's no magic behind it. Like, very, I mean, the people are born with special athletic gifts, but no one is born, uh, with the ability to be a professional soccer player. There's no substitute to the hours and hours that it takes to get there. So it's the people who are willing to do that work and who understand what it takes and then literally Day in and day out for a number of years, um, execute on that vision, and so uh, it's very empowering to think of that. It's like nobody has this within them, and then some people have it, some people don't. Really, it's available to a wide array of people, especially in soccer. You know, all different body body types, heights, you know, different athletic abilities can make a successful soccer player. So really if you want to put in the work, you have a very good chance of achieving your goals.
2: Before we move to your role with the NWSL, one final plug, where can people find Technique Football? Where can they get the app?
4: Yeah, so any player all around the world can download the app from the app store and we offer a one-week free trial so you can try it out. If you're a player, parent, coach, you just want to check it out. We have a one-week free trial, no strings attached. It's not one of those tricks where you enter payment information. I really hate that. Um, And then if you're a um, a coach or somebody looking to offer technique to your team or club you can go on our website TechniFootball.com and we have information about our group subscription so it can bo- work both both ways as an individual you can just download it and give it a try or if you're looking for uh, uh, you know for a group, option, definitely check out our website.
2: Just like folks need to spell out your name because it's so interesting, intriguing, I'm going to have you spell it out so people know exactly how to find it.
4: That is smart. I appreciate you saying that. T-E-C-H-N-E-F-U-T-B-O-L. Yeah, I made the mistake of making another complicated name. I should have done it simpler.
2: No, it's a great name, particularly based on the origin and the meaning of what it meant to you and now moving to your role as the the co-executive director for the nwsl players union i know yael that um you've gone through some health issues and and i understand you have not necessarily retired so perhaps you could even make a return although now you're having a baby so maybe that's changed since the last time i heard your message particularly on the beautiful game where you were outstanding yael so eloquent i love that that interview first of all break down you know what you went through health wise and what that has meant to you you know mentally and physically to not be able to play the game you love at the highest level
4: yeah you know i have an illness called ulcerative colitis uh it's kind of like crohn's disease for anyone who's familiar a digestive uh related illness and i've known i've had it for a number of years actually uh started to develop it kind of around the time I was playing in Sweden in around, uh, around 2012-ish. And so, but it's been very manageable over the years. You know, I take a daily medication and I've had periods of time where I honestly have forgotten that I have it. Uh, but over the past uh, three plus years now, I had a, what they call a flare-up, which means it got pretty bad. And I just, uh, I, I couldn't get it back under control. I played through being very sick for a while and uh, it just became really, really stressful to train and play and travel and even at times leave home. Uh, there were times where it was really tough for me to leave home in the morning. Um, so basically I just – my body literally uh, – w- my body was sending me a lot of signals that I tried to ignore for a long time and I really just couldn't do it anymore. So uh, this is my second season not playing. Um, the reason I didn't actually – Announce retirement is. I'm not sure if I if I'll play professionally again or not. Uh, I haven't. I haven't decided. I kind of. I've left it up in the air. But really, I kind of felt it was uh, for me personally not something that I wanted to quote unquote retire from because when I thought back, I've really had the mindset of being a soccer player and that was what I've been in my life since I was honestly nine years old. Uh, and just because I signed a professional contract at one point, I don't feel like it really changed anything for me you know I've always been a soccer player and I think I will always be one I'll always be playing pickup you know after I have the baby and stuff I've already planned to get back in shape for my off-season pickup group and I love playing I love kicking the ball around so for me it seems silly to announce an end to something that I never like it, it began so long ago it's always been part of me almost so I think for that reason I'm not sure if I'll play professionally again but had to step away from it uh for now and to be honest probably uh, probably my last season was a couple of seasons ago. But, yeah, I, I feel really fortunate to have stayed involved very heavily with uh, the game in general, but also the professional league. So it's allowed me a very uh, relatively easy transition because I still – I live at breed Soccer, whether I'm on the field doing it or uh, demonstrating videos for the Techni app or working directly with the players in the, in the league itself. So I feel still very much a part of it.
2: So what does it mean to be the NWSL co-executive director of the Players Union, Yael?
4: Yes, actually, um, about four or five years ago now, um, some active players and myself started up our Players Association, which a couple years ago was officially became a union. And I've, this has been a learning process for me as I've gone. I had no idea what I was starting, and I always joke about it, is that my initial intention was just to create a group-me group where we could all communicate throughout the league. And then fast forward a few years of, like, researching all about learning about unions and having all kinds of conversations with the league. And so, really, as players, we had no representation. Uh, there was nobody speaking on our behalf to answer questions, to raise concerns, to just give us a voice, you know. And there's so much hard work going into making NWSL succeed, from the uh, team ownership group to the, the front office itself and as players we wanted to play a part in that progress to be able to speak on our own behalf but also to to join forces and to really help help and assist and push things forward because I think there's a strong feeling that as the league succeeds, the players will succeed. And the league needs the players to succeed. So we all need each other. So really, as I lead the organization with Brooke Elby, also a former Tar Heel and recently retired uh, pro player, and we work directly with the players. You know, it's an organization for and by the players. And literally, like, we are players coming coming directly from the field to helping to push the organization forward.
2: Well, I love what you said to talk- Tony Niccolo on the Beautiful Game podcast about getting these women to start thinking about their careers post-playing, even why they are playing, and starting up new activities that will generate, whether it's promotional or later on, generate perhaps a new job for them. And as I sit here, and I'm not quite sure the timeline, if you played at North Carolina with Jessica McDonald or not, but Jessica McDonald was on the World Cup team, arguably player 21, 22, or 23 somewhere in that area, certainly not one of the first 11, but you talk about a player who has capitalized on the moment and got outside of her comfort zone every multiple platform. I mean, she's... She's doing it all. She's carpeted. She's in the moment, right? And I feel like what you've done is inspiration for her.
4: Oh well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I did. I did play with Jess for a couple of years, but I think that that's our goal in part. And I think with the Players Association, we we have kind of like three pillars, and one is to really forge the lines of communication uh, among the player group and to the league and back down from the league out to the player group. The second is to work with the league, like you said, to have a voice in ongoing decisions. But really that third pillar, like you talked about, is to show players what you can be doing alongside what you're doing on the field to further your education, get your coaching licenses, promote products and partner with brands, build your personal brand, figure out what else you're passionate about and continue to grow that. We have players who are pursuing photography and strength and conditioning licenses and coaching and doing so much. And I think that's the – The beauty of being a professional athlete is that we would love to get to the point one day where in the women's game you don't need to do any of that stuff, but at the same time you do have the time to start to think about it. And so, you know, it's really a big passion of mine and and our organizations to encourage players to be thinking about that now. Like you don't need to wait until you're done playing to then start to explore what else you can be doing.
2: We know that your app, Technique Football, is thriving because of the pandemic what we hope is that the pandemic will not slow down the amazing momentum generated for women's soccer through the US women's soccer team to NWSL please tell me yael that we'll get through this and NWSL will come out at the end right back where they were when we last saw them
4: yeah you know it's certainly a it's a scary time and for any uh for all businesses no matter how big or small and you know NWSL is still uh, is still up and coming, but I think you know. If there's one thing we know about the women's soccer community, it's that we're resilient. I mean, the the fan base, the player group, the ownership groups, the the league itself is that women's soccer, time and time again, has made a resurgence, has continued to fight to um, to be be and stay relevant. And so I think you know we're used to this battle. I have a lot of faith. You know, the league is in good hands with Lisa Barrett as the commissioner. I've been really, really impressed by her leadership through this time. It's a ridiculous situation to come into as a new commissioner of a league. But I think, you know, there's only hopeful things when I look at how the league has done in recent times and where it can go from here. So I'm very, very hopeful.
2: Finally, the big, gigantic, huge elephant in the room is the $60 million-plus lawsuit filed by the U.S women's national team and their key players against U.S. soccer. In your position, how do you support that cause and what's your take on the lawsuit?
4: Yeah, so really in an official official sense, we as a a Players Association have we are totally uninvolved in that lawsuit. I I see two big messages from it and, and kind of what I try to always remind myself and remind others is that, one, I think it's so important that, you know, our women, our national women's soccer team is the best in the world at what they do. So they're always pushing the bar forward, and I think – you know, they have the support of everyone to continue to to push the bar forward. For women everywhere, really, it's not just soccer, and it's not just in the U.S. I think the other thing that I always like to draw attention to is that while we look at, you know, the idea of equal pay, and it's a very easy slogan for people to, to latch on to, I always try to remind people that, yes, we certainly need to make progress in terms of uh, equal pay between women and their male counterparts, but also Uh, between those women who we all know their names, their household names, they're hugely successful in our sport, but also their teammates who they play with and against day in and day out, who are NWFL players, who are, some of them are national team caliber players, but, you know, just outside of that roster who won the World Cup or who, you know, has the opportunity to play on that biggest stage. So I think where I like to draw attention to as part of this conversation is that we still have a huge gap to close in terms of, what the lifestyle is like for a female professional soccer player in this country in general. And we have such a huge talent pool and so many athletes who are working incredibly hard. And I think we would like to continue to push that forward with the league's help and in tandem with the league's success as, you know, the U.S. Women's National Team push it forward from the top.
2: Yeah, I know. I still picture you, the tall, long, slender, holding mid for North Carolina, connecting the dots in the middle of the park, and then your amazing career, and now hearing that you're going to be a mom, knowing that your app's doing well, knowing you have this role. Good things happen to good people. You're proof of that, Yael. Congratulations on all your success. Good luck with the baby. I hope all that goes well, and thanks so much for being on the United Soccer Coaches podcast.
4: Oh, I I so greatly appreciate it, and I I love running into you over the years and and hearing your voice as an advocate for our sport, so thank you so much.
2: You got it. Yael Averbush West, the mom-to-be, and also check out Techni Football. Coming up, national champion just like Yael Averbush West, Brian Wee. He won the first-ever title for Georgetown last year. He'll talk about that is soccer coaches podcast presented by team snap this is tough times we're all dealing with as we deal with the pandemic known as covid 19 as some of you know the pandemic has shifted the focus of men's d1 coaches from the notion of the 21st century model to just initially securing a future for the programs amid the financial uncertainties and of course Good news coming out from the NCA last Friday, as the NCA's rejection on Friday of the 27 Division One conferences' request for a blanket waiver on Division One requirements on the minimum number of sports a school must sponsor. So, at least for the moment, a bright light and good news for men's college soccer. We should be talking to Brian Weiss about his national championship that he got last December, Georgetown's first national title. The Hoyas were incredible, well-deserved, but instead we're talking about just the viability and security of men's college soccer but brian at least as i welcome you in congratulations one more time on winning that national championship but instead of talking about that our focus is on the news from the ncaa and our current state
5: to tell you what anything four months ago is is old old news right might as well be four years ago at this stage with everything so so there's a lot of uncertainty moving forward for every walk of life. And, and you just look at the world of, of undergraduate education, you know, college, secondary education, college, it's, it's a lot lot to, uh, to be determined still. Plenty of uncertainty, and uncertainty makes everyone uncomfortable. So we're, we're hoping to we get through this and, and get through around the right end of it up there at the back side.
2: At least a good positive answer initially from the NCAA, though, right? You have to be pleased with that. That
4: was a real point of concern,
5: and not just for men's record, I think for all Olympic sports. It's such an uncertain time for everybody. Everyone's looking at their budget lines and athletic departments and universities are, are trying to put all cards on the table, put all options on the table, and when you need to make significant cuts, the, the easiest way to do it and the hardest way in, in, in a lot of aspects is to, is to cut sports. You know, there's certain sports that are pretty safe right now, uh, but it's, you know, unfortunately, Olympic sports in general have kind a of issues and Men's Olympic sports are all very much aware of the situation and, and hoping that you know universities and and our sport as a collective is able to solve problems with not having to, to, to sever things right. You want you want to find a way through the back end where you can maybe get your footing again, but uh, hopefully the the the, the long term solution. Is one that you know sees all these, these athletes and these kids and these sports programs still existing on the back end of this whole thing, and, and we're certainly not out of the woods uh, in, in at all. I think it's a time where everyone's going to recalibrate. I think all universities and athletic departments need to recalibrate. You know, you mentioned the University of Cincinnati; those kinds of programs are, are really nervy for me. The ones that are in the Power Five football conferences, but still have Division One football. Those are those programs that are probably making really hard decisions right now because, do we keep football? <laughs> that's, maybe the, that's maybe the big question they should be asking, with the expense of that and the risk of that, or do they cut a whole bunch of other things? It's a scary time for everybody, but, uh, you know, I think we as a collective, the United Soccer coaches, have been working hard and a lot of uh, unification as a sport to try to make sure everybody pushes through uh, together. Well, you mentioned
2: the Power Five situation, and, you know, particularly you said it's football. But when I think about as it relates to soccer as well, you know, here you go. You win a national championship. And part of the reason we want to have you on and we booked you before the great news from the NCAA is you're a national champion, but do you worry even more, though, about the non-Power 5 men's college soccer programs, Ryan?
5: Yeah, I, you, know, like you do. I think you worry about it's an individual thing. I think each, each school's got their own financial situation, their own financial strength or weaknesses right now. And I think this is where you find out very quickly what the, the situation is for, for all the athletic departments across the country. You know, are they going to ask everyone to tighten the belt or are they going to lop off an arm to survive? I think we as, as coaches... Are understanding that we need to position ourselves in a way that we can we can be part of the solution, you know, to get through this, you know, next however however long when there's so much financial uncertainty without you know compromising sort of how we operate as well, right? So I, I think the mentality I always kind of think about is: is can we be frugal and can we be flexible? You know, can we be flexible with with how our seasons put together with maybe our time that's going to have to be um, different from what we're used to with maybe traveling differently than how we were used to traveling, you know, and cutting things where we can to lessen the, the burden that each of our sports in our programs have on the big picture. I really do hope that a lot of schools out there have the same mentality that, you know, I think we're lucky enough to have a Georgetown with, Lee Reed, our athletic director, Jack DeJoya, who's our president, I mean, they believe so strongly in the student athlete experience and what that, what that means as part of the education and everything else. I mean, they were talking about going from what, 16 sports down to 12 is, with the proposal that, that, that just got, thank, thank goodness, got uh, rejected. The first time was 30, you know, we have 30 sports. You know, knock on wood, I don't think there's any intention of, of knocking that number down because of how highly they value what a, a student-athlete, a varsity student-athlete experience does for the development of the young man and woman, that's really where you want people to sort of take that step, take a breath, and say, that is something that's sacred, and we got to find a way through it, and, you know, I think I think everyone's campuses are working individually on that pretty hard.
2: What have you learned so far about the options for men's college soccer should the pandemic require a postponement
5: of the 2020 college season? It's a really interesting discussion because we have to spend a lot of time talking about the what-ifs. There's really four scenarios that are in play moment. <clears throat> one is that we'll, we'll start on time, right, which is us, our first training session this year would be uh, August 11th. All the things that would have to be put in place and lined up in order for that to happen, right? So colleges would have to be in a position to have students back on campus taking classes on campus. So one of those things that need to allow for that. But, you know, that's the first thing is things starting on time almost certainly with a lot of rescheduling of games right there's a lot of teams that are going to have to regardless of when we start or what happens is we're going to have to we're going to have to cut budgets we're going to have to make things a little bit more economical and i think there's a lot of games out there where teams have been playing to fly into other then used to play, and, and those games might just have to be rescheduled for games that are more geographically close, and you know, things you can bust to or, or take man to, minimize hotel stays, all that. But that's the first option, which would be by far the best case, because that's the, the least invasive on what the student-athlete's experience is going to be. The second option is to push it back, delay the start, have a truncated season. I think the NCAA as an organizing body would love to get it done at some point in the fall. You know, if it, if it means you've got to cut things way down and and just play 12 games instead of 20, and, and or, or or just play a league uh, slate. Uh, people talk about not playing an NCAA postseason. People have talked about removing conference tournaments. I mean, everyone's everyone sort of brainstorming like what it could look like, and, and at the end they will be acceptable. And that would be something just to get the season in, right? In An already compressed season. That would be the the we got to start a little late, but we're still going to try to get the season in mentality. And then other people have said, well, what, why don't we not compress things and and either play a few games in the fall and then the rest of the games in the spring, or just flip our traditional seasons where you make the spring a sort of off-season where you play a couple games locally and your your championship segment is really just a spring-only segment. And then the last piece is you just don't play. You just cancel everything until fall of 2021, which is, in my view, an unacceptable solution. We have to to figure that out. But there's a lot of pushback to – Every one of those scenarios, a lot of people in the NCAA is, is nervous about potentially having too many championship segments going on in the spring all at the same time. You know, facilities being shared and needing to, 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 to spread out sports information and athletic trainers and all those challenges that would happen if you moved. Because it wouldn't just be men's soccer, soccer women's soccer volleyball and field hockey, but I would argue really strongly that those are obstacles that would need to be fought through and overcome to make sure that we don't lose the opportunity for these guys to to compete. I mean, I think it wasn't too long ago when you, we were living in the world of all the spring sports, having their postseason or their almost their entirety of their spring season canceled. When you were on a campus and with those coaches and with those student-athletes, it was tragic for those programs and for those seniors to, to have that happen. We have to try to avoid it at all costs if we, can, if we can help it.
2: We're all learning new ways to communicate during this tough time. You actually wear a couple hats. One, you're a leader of these fine young men who won the national championship last year, and second, you've got a daughter playing soccer at Princeton. Give us some examples of how you are communicating with your young men both your American players and your international players, and then also what you're learning about how your daughter's Princeton soccer team, how she's communicating with her coaches and, and teammates. I kind of get
5: both sides of that, that window, right, where I see our current players, and, and I'm trying to communicate with them as a coach, and then I'm on, on the on the other side of it with, with her, the struggles that she's going through with not being with her, with her best friends and with their teammates and playing soccer and, and being on a campus, and um, you know I think the theory of what the kids are going through is is what it is. But I certainly have a, a lot of empathy and insight based on you know what my daughter's going through. And I think the one common commonality, Dean, is is that these kids are being so resilient. When I look at my daughter and and her friends, her peer group, her teammates, it's a really hard situation it's at that age to have this time, which is which is one of the most special times you have in your life, your college years. Uh, those experiences on campus. That is just so wonderfully unique, and and they have to they have to take take a break from it. They have to, they have to, they sort of get it taken away from them. And seeing how they're handling it is it's like pretty, pretty inspiring. I mean, they're, they're so resilient, these kids. We're trying to stay connected. We're trying to keep them connected. We, we've we got uh, Zoom meetings with them every so often. We usually try to get, like, a weekly meeting with them. They're, our guys are just now getting ready to finish the classes and go into finals, so we're going to give them a little bit of a break from that. And But we're trying to bring in alumni guest speakers. We're bringing in um, games for them, right? We're trying to do things to keep them engaged. We have a, every three days we have a different player put out a video technical challenge that the the teammates have three days to try to do better with them which is great fun i mean they're all there's all sorts of stupidity in those challenges we let them do whatever they want when they do their challenges but you know a lot of it is, is just the mental side of it i'm not so worried about them becoming better soccer players in this particular time you want them running you want them doing strength work you want them touching a ball but you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a huge pause for the development of, of a team or development of an individual. You you got to take the good with the bad, and, and and it's an opportunity for guys to get more fit. But I'm much more worried about their mental well-being. Right? How are they coping with this situation? How are they? I mean, our guys just miss being together. They miss being on campus. They miss Georgetown. They miss competing. And these are these are these are huge parts of who they are, and and how when they wake up in the morning, what they look, most look forward to, and they just don't have it right now. So you know, we're we're trying that. I and you know, funny thing, Dean is is the Zoom thing has been great, but I find just, just picking up the phone and having a regular phone conversation with each of the guys, you know, with with, with some regularity, is almost mm-hmm. the best almost the best way to communicate now. Funnily enough, right? It's it's much more intimate. I feel. I think. I think when you're on when you're on a Zoom call, like your brain is trying to figure out all these different things. because It's just a, a little bit that you can relax a little bit on the phone, right? The guys. I have. I have wonderful conversations with our guys when we call and talk to them. You know, we call in our incoming guys and we're trying to feed talent guys. But the phone call. I look forward to the phone call more than I do the Zoom the Zoom call. Just trying to stay on top of that is, is a big one. That makes a ton of sense.
2: What kind of advice are you giving to your incoming freshmen? And I guess. You know, further to that what kind of advice would you give to juniors and seniors that are wondering how they're going to get noticed
5: and, and how the
2: spotlights going to be put on them Start with your incoming freshman Brian
5: it's an amazing time because you know the normal summer that we're about to go into is guys are playing right if you' you're playing with in, in your club setting all of those like the DA and the UCNL and the national leagues and those things kind of run through June. Sometimes into July, and they kind of get that nice maybe three or four weeks off before pre-season starts. And now it's like nothing's going on; everything's canceled. We're really right now just saying like, hey, we're going to give you updates because half of it is, is giving them some some clarity about the situation, right? What's the timing going to look like, and everything else. But we're trying to tell them, listen, don't don't over worry about things. We'll guide you through. We're, we're going to middle of day. We'll give them some fitness some instructions to try to build themselves up for fitness what so we're projecting to hopefully start in August so if that's going to hold then we will, we'll, we'll have that uh, timing but it's being very aware of when things free up right when when guys are able to actually get out to a field not have to sneak out to a field but are allowed to go out to a field somewhere a high school field or a park or wherever and, and, and take buddies out to play pickup like when does that time happen and then try to take advantage of that right try to play as much as they can but Right now, we're, we're just we're saying, listen, just handle your 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 studies as well as you can. You know, everyone's online right now, so just go through that, finish that well. Try to be the best athlete you can be. Get out, you know, take advantage of the time and get fit, and then try to grow somehow. Like learn how to cook something for your for your parents. Like learn how to play the guitar. Learn how, like do something right with with your downtime. Right. So, I think at a, at, a, at a certain period of time, there's only so much Fortnite a kid can play. Although my son is my son is trying to prove, disprove that. He, he, he's so heavy into it. But there's only so much sort of that idle sort of brain time, and, and, and you really need to be stimulated. So, like, embrace that sort of antsiness and, and, and pick up something new in the meantime. And, but it's particularly tough, Dean, for I have a lot of sympathy for these sophomores and juniors, right? It's like the junior class, you know, so we have, I think, six kids committed, verbally committed in our junior class for high school kids. So like, with Dell's spots that we're trying to fill, but we're trying to do it without being able to see the kids play right in person. We're we're trying to do it without having camps, to get them on campus. The NCAA has a dead period put in place through May right now, and I may extend that even deeper into the summer. Which what that what that means is is we can't see a kid in person, we can't see them play in person, we can't have them on campus. Really, the only thing you can do is is call or email. Or text if they're if they're old enough if they're juniors, um, and watch video. Of them. So we're watching a lot more video than we've ever watched, trying to get a handle on things. But the video is, you know, for me personally, it's a far cry from seeing somebody in person. So we're we're sort of in a funny spot where we're trying to figure out like if nobody's playing through the summer, and then our season starts up in the fall. We may not really see players again in person until November or December. And that's so late in the recruiting process for us because of our admissions, admissions wants people applying by, you know, beginning of January. It's a really tight window. And so people are going to start making decisions on so, so little information that you have to figure out how to navigate that, right? You know, maybe we're going to make decisions in November, December to seeing a kid play once or twice more or, or once or twice just ever. Or our kids trying to make decisions without visiting campuses and you know, it's, it's really a hard situation for those guys. And then for the, the sophomores, the 2022s, this is the very beginning of when we're usually getting a really good handle on who those kids are. You know, we'll just miss them. We're just not going to see them for a little bit. And so we miss that early early recruiting period. But those kids will be okay. They'll figure it out. It's really the 2021s that haven't committed somewhere right now that they got to find a way to, to, to get in front of people. And right now the only way to do it is, 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 is the video.
2: Final question for Brian Weiss as we are watching on Sunday night the Michael Jordan recap, which has been awesome to focus on that. And I know you made the comment that what happened four months ago seems like four years ago. But one thing we can always do is reflect. And because it just happened and you won a national championship and you deserved a national championship, I'm guessing that you can kind of reflect on that and let that bring a smile and and a sense
5: of joy and and pride Mm -hmm. to
2: you and your program.
5: You know the funny thing that's, that's been going through my head over the last bit is is just one of real gratitude that we were able to experience that the luck of having our fall season actually happen. When I think of all of those spring sports and each of those sports was a, was going to have a national champion, right? You're going to have a national, a baseball national champion, softball, lacrosse is, you know, you name it, you can go through, it. and just knowing what a special experience it was for our whole community i mean not just our players and our staff but our alumni our university that it was such a wonderful special experience but my heart goes out to those those champions that were never crowned uh this spring you know because it's just such a lost opportunity for for what is a life-changing experience for everyone who grew, who, who went through it we had a special group of kids and you know they, they have they have this thing that uh, that uh, they can talk about and reflect on and 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 to be fair, used in their careers and in, in 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 their families and in their lives, you know, for, for, forever. So I'm just so happy that uh, and, and and grateful and relieved that that uh, the year we wanted, we actually had it. We we our our own season wasn't kind cut of short. So right now, I just got I got a lot of, I got a lot of gratitude there. Brian Weese, the reigning national champion for men's
2: and college soccer Division One, top man at Georgetown. Thanks so much for being on this week's United. Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by
1: Team Snap. Thanks for having me, Dean. We thank Brian Weiss. We also thank Yael Averbush and Christian Lavers for being on the program. Shout out to Sean Chevro, Mike Nipper, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches. For each and every one of you, I'm Dean Linky. See you next
2: week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap.